0: Hello and welcome to the brand new Penguin Podcast. My name is Richard E. Grant and in each episode I'll be joined in the studio by one of the world's leading authors. Each of my guests will be bringing in five objects that inspired and shaped the writing of their latest book and I'm going to be an absolute unashamed nosy parker, probably going off piece, not stick to the questions, and to try and find out as much as I possibly can on your behalf. So, here goes.
1: The Penguin Podcast with Richard E. Grant.
0: This week, I'm very excited to be joined by award-winning author Kate Atkinson. Her first novel, Behind the Scenes at the Museum, won the Costa Book of the Year and it was absolutely brilliant. Her four best-selling novels featuring former detective Jackson Brodie became a series starring Jason Isaacs for the BBC. Her last novel, Life After Life... Was one of the top selling adult books of 2014 and won the Costa Novel Award and the South Bank Sky Arts Literature Prize. She joins me today to talk about her new book, A God in Ruins. It gives me great pleasure to welcome her to the studio. Hi, Kate. <laughs> Hi, Richard. Kate, A God in Ruins has been described as genre defying by The Observer, a magnificent achievement by The Independent, and The Daily Telegraph says it has one of the most devastating twists. In recent fiction. Is that fair?
1: (laughs) Well, I am most pleased with this book, I think, than I have been with anything else.
0: And Kate has said that without a smidgen of smugness or (laughs) grandiosity (laughs) whatsoever, which makes it even more compelling. Now, you've called A God in Ruins a companion to Life After Life. Tell me what you mean by that, and if you could bear to explain the story of the two books if you haven't read and I'm very aware of it, that that you've got to say, you know, what's it about? Titanic, they built it, it sank.
1: (laughs) I know, I'm terribly uh, tempted always just to say, well, read it. Exactly, I agree. (laughs) But it is very hard because it's very difficult to encapsulate even what a book feels like, let alone what happens. And I think Life After Life is about the Todd family. They're an Edwardian middle-class family, with all that implies. And in Life After Life, it's a story of, Ursula, one of the girls who dies and comes back to life several times and leads many different lives, spanning her birth in, I think, 1910 through to the war period. And we see after the war as well, but it's mainly that period. And in that, she has a brother, Teddy, who is very much just a child in Life After Life. He's the emotional centre of the book for Ursula. And although we know he joins the RAF, we don't really see the grown-up Teddy. And when I started Life After Life, I knew I was going to write Teddy's story as well because there was too much material for one book and also I wanted to write particularly based it around Bomber Command and that really didn't work for Ursula's book. It takes Teddy's story into his adulthood and, and to his old age so we see a very, different, a very different character from the one that we see in Life After Life and with a very different structure as well because Life After Life is literally one life after the next whereas this is one life
0: which leads us perfectly into the first short extract from the audiobook, which is read here by Alex Jennings. The chapter is called This Unforgiving Winter, and it's 1947.
2: The war now for him was a jumble of random images that haunted his sleeping self. The Alps in moonlight, a propeller blade flying through the air, a face pale in the water. Well, good luck to you then. Sometimes the overwhelming stench of lilacs. At other times a sweetly held dance tune. And always at the end of the nightmare there was the inescapable end itself. The fire and the sickening hurtle of the fall to earth.
0: Okay, we have five objects which Mm -hmm. then act hopefully as a springboard for our conversation. And... I'm very intrigued to see what objects you've brought with you today. And I know you like to place your own personal objects in your books.
1: I do. I did that particularly with behind the scenes at the museum. It was absolutely stuffed with things I had owned or owned or things that other people I knew had as children. It was, it was as if it was this repository of, of the lost things, you know. But because I put so many in that book, I have fewer and fewer now in books.
0: So, Kate, what is the first object you've brought in with you today?
1: Silver Rabbit, as I call him, but he's a silver hair for the purposes of this book. He's about one and a half inches high. And like the silver rabbit in Life After Life in a God in Ruins, he once was the top of a rattle, a Victorian rattle, which amazes me because he's got these sharp pointy ears that can take a child's eye out. But Victorians are much more less laissez fair, I think, with their children. And I've always loved this little rabbit, my... Godparents were antique dealers and this is in the 50s when nobody was in the least bit interested in antiques I mean if you could go in one of those if I could go back in time I could make a killing because I would buy up all these things but they always had little objects that they'd found you know in drawers or had come with in a box of other stuff and Silver Rabbit was one of those. I've had this. I can't remember ever not having Silver Rabbit. So it was very nice to place him in a book. And he gives huge continuity to these two books because he hangs on a chain from the pram of all of the children in Life After Life, all of the Todd children, and he once was the finial on Sylvie's rattle, and I think came even from her grandmother. So this rabbit in the books, or the hare, we must call him a hare, has been going on for several generations.
0: You've, You've detailed how this talisman, this hare, goes through the whole story. In all your research... Is this something that, that people had miniature keepsakes like this in order to remind them of home or somebody that they no, loved? No, they
1: really were good luck charms. I mean, they had all kinds of things. I was making a list of them when I was researching the book, and it was anything and everything from you know the old rabbits' paw to they had playing cards, they had bits of their girls' underwear, they had anything that somehow spoke to them as you know. And of course, once you take, say, you take a lucky charm up on a flight. Mm-hmm and you come back safe, then yes. you can't possibly leave it behind the next time, can you? So exactly. this, it, it grows and increases, I think, each time. So
0: let's hear a clip about these
2: lucky charms and the rituals. And this is from Teddy's War. Luck was everything. Now, lady, according to Keith, just a bloody tart. Superstition was rampant on the station. Everyone in the squadron seemed to have their own voodoo. A lock of hair, a St Christopher a playing card, the ubiquitous rabbit foot. There was a flight sergeant who always sang La Donne Mobile in the crew room when they were getting dressed in their flying clothes, and another who had to put his left boot on before his right. If he forgot, he had to take all his kit off and start again. He survived the war. The flight sergeant who sang La Donna Immobile did not nor the other hundreds with their weird rites and sacraments. The dead were legion, and the gods had their own secret agenda. Well, luck is an important theme in the book.
0: Now, what makes the Bomber Command airmen so heroic and courageous is that they still got in the planes, even though the stats were stacked so highly against them. The average age of these men was 22, and less than half of them survived.
1: I know, it's terribly sad when you visit one of these war graves just to see... Row after row, 19, 20, 21, 22, just terrible.
0: Were these horrendous odds part of the catalyst of why you wrote this book?
1: I think so, because it's it's to examine the, the mindset of how you would... Because you put yourself in that position, don't you? So I think, okay, if I was a male and, you know, I was... They volunteered. They all volunteered. And I do wonder if they knew exactly what they were volunteering for, but you did not have to join bomber command. And I think, how would I have felt? And I think it's almost impossible. Because I think one of the reasons... Is because they were young. If you think of young men, you think of youth. They're reckless. They don't. You know. You might say to them, "You get on that motorbike. There's a good chance you'll be killed." They still get on the motorbike because it doesn't. Death doesn't mean anything.
0: No, you think you're going to live forever.
1: And I think perhaps that's part of it. But that certainly shouldn't take away from the heroism of doing what they were doing. And Teddy, of course, does seventy missions. He's on his third tour at the end of of the war section. And very few people would ever have achieved that number. So when he's going up, he's almost, in his head, he's already dead because he's gone so far beyond the likelihood of living that he just doesn't see that there is any possibility that he's ever going to come back. This is The Penguin Podcast.
0: All right, your next object, Kate, is a Halifax bomber. When and where was this photo taken?
1: This is the Yorkshire Air Museum in Elvington, near York. And I'm not sure when the museum was set up. Maybe they started about 20 years ago, but it was based around this Halifax. Now, this Halifax is not actually a genuine Halifax because every single one of the Halifaxes was sold for scrap after the war. I think the Canadians have one that they pulled out of a a lock somewhere in Norway. Um, I don't know what state that's in, but that's in a museum in Canada. This one has been put together from parts, from bits of, of other Halifaxes. And it's, it's a magnificent beast. It is. It's not as big as the Lancaster.
0: So you've said that the Lancaster normally gets all the glamour and the glory. It does. So Why is this? Well, and why do you want to give the Halifax some of the glory? Well,
1: the Lancaster was developed after the Halifax. And it can fly higher and longer and carry a bigger bomb load. So therefore it was, in that way, a, a more useful aircraft I suppose but and it took part in all the, the glamour raids like the Dambusters and so on but I think because for me when I was growing up these were airfields that had, had Halifax's not Lancaster's I don't know if there were any Lancaster airfields in Yorkshire I'm sure I'll be corrected on that and so I felt that particular affinity because you know people from Yorkshire are they're like Texans, you know, it's, it's the best county. It's, it's <laughs> God's own county. Which uh, is why you
0: now live in Scotland.
1: I know. it's, it's Traitor. It, it's sad. I, I, will, I will die in Yorkshire. I, I've made that vow to myself. Why did you go to live in Scotland? I went to university there and then I had children there and my family became very entrenched there. So it's hard to winkle them out. But I your think. heart
0: is still in oh, Yorkshire. my heart is in
1: Yorkshire, absolutely. Well, you were obviously
0: born in Yorkshire and grew up around the airfields. But is that why you, you've been so particularly interested in the war?
1: I don't know. um, In the author's note to life after life, I said that I just missed the war because I was born in 51. And that's near enough the war to have felt its presence without that presence ever being really articulated, I think. To people of my generation, they do feel that the war is very close, but they didn't experience it. And therefore, it's it's almost like a frustrating memory. It's something that you've almost forgotten, although in fact, we've never experienced it. And I wanted to bring it back to life for me. I think that's why I wrote Life After Life was I wanted to imagine the Blitz for myself, I think, because I think it's something I would... It sounds terrible, but I think I would have enjoyed living through it in the way that people, women, had very good wars. You know, they became different people during the war. So I'm
0: sensing for you a nostalgia for a time... that violence. (laughs) ...that you you didn't live through. Yes,
1: I think so. Uh, uh, But also because at such an incredibly heightened, dramatic time as well, Mm. and I don't think we've really experienced that since. There is a sort of a craving for the dark side there, I think.
0: Okay, let's hear another bit of the book. Teddy, in
2: 1943, inside the Halifax, consumed by the war. The truth was that there was nothing else he wanted to do, could do. Flying on bombing raids had become him, who he was. The only place he cared about was the inside of a Halifax, the smells of dirt and oil, of sour sweat, of rubber and metal and the tang of oxygen. He wanted to be deafened by the thunder of her engines. He needed to be drained of every thought by the cold, the noise, and the equal amounts of boredom and adrenaline. He had believed once that he would be formed by the architecture of war, but now he realised... You've been erased by it. So, obviously, Kate, you spent a lot of time at
0: the Yorkshire Air Museum. So, how much other research did you do? And what are the perils of writing historical fiction? I mean, is there an enormous amount of fact checking or.
1: I did a lot of reading. I read a lot of uh, personal accounts and I watched a lot of DVDs, a lot of RAF films, and then I put it all away and tried to forget about the facts so that I wasn't obsessed by the facts Uh and then so that I needed to create the the feeling of it and then I went back and I didn't completely abandon the facts as I was writing but I tried not to get too bogged down in them Uh, but there's quite a lot of um, points in the war chapters when you do need to be quite factual because it is Teddy talking about his plane and I, was n- I never felt entirely confident about planes not being a pilot or knowing anything about planes and <laughs> I do did, I did keep checking things with people and even then I just felt that I probably should never be allowed near the controls of a plane because I'd probably send it into the ground rather than up but I think you are allowed to make things up when you write historical fiction. I think that's the the, the baseline, that it is a work of fiction. Never forget that. But I think particularly when you're dealing with something that's just within living memory and you're dealing with events that real people experienced that were personal to them and horrible in many cases, then you have to honour a certain amount of fact. You cannot just... Be cavalier about what you're writing. I think I failed my doctorate because I think I probably didn't research well enough. So I'm always slightly, slightly nervous when historians speak to me. I think they're going to notice that I've probably got something tremendously wrong.
0: Were the, were the men at the museum surprised that you were so I don't interested? Know. They,
1: they were. They were fairly poker faced about it. They they knew I was coming, so uh-huh. they they were prepared to a certain extent. But you know, I was asking very. Questions about so so that thing there is that the thing that we would put out if they were if they're putting out the aerial? and it's like um no it's over there, and I'm going, oh good because it's only when you I'd written most of the book when i when I actually um had my Halifax tour and and I was really glad I had because then I knew all the really stupid things that you begin asking uh, when you're writing a book like this you as you're going on you learn the answers to and you think oh my god I can't believe I didn't know such a simple thing and it's much best that you've actually got to the end and you realize right this is the cache of things I do not understand Uh I've got to grips with everything else but these are the things I need to know so that was the point to which we went so it's fascinating it was a very hot day and it was very claustrophobic inside it was very small you just think how did they manage to move around in that I mean, the bulky clothing is extraordinary. They're like three times their size once they're in their flying gear. Imagine trying to get out of that in an emergency. You're in a... So the
0: reality of being inside there, the geography of it... That is was a real that's... help
1: because I had looked at lots and lots of photographs and sort of 3D um, diagrams of exactly where everything was. Uh-huh. And so I kind of knew where everything was, but it didn't mean anything until you actually see, oh, that's... You know where he's sitting. That's where that is. I know it's there, but somehow to actually see the thing is very different. It was um, so the
0: impact of the wing being on fire when you're actually inside there would have had much more impact on you actually being in the physical.
1: Oh yes, because you could well. see, and you you know no, you're going. So is that the escape hatch? And you think, oh my goodness, so you, to Terror. get to the escape hatch, no, the, how's the rear gunner ever going to get out? How is it's just extraordinary? Yeah, I I, I can't believe. How many people actually did get out? I mean, a small percentage, but I can't imagine how they managed to escape.
0: The book struck me that it's so much a meditation about age and dying Mm. that obviously is the ageing process something that interests you, worries you, obsesses you?
1: Well, I'm 63, so yes, it really does interest me. I'm 58, <laughs> I am exactly
0: the same, you can't double it, can you? You yeah. can double 50 and think, well, it could be 100.
1: <laughs> I'm aiming for 100. Yes, um, that's what I mean two. <laughs> but a healthy 100, that's the, that's the trick. Once you go to this age, you realise it's not a case of having another 30, 40 years. It's yeah. a case of having another 30, 40 really good years. And yes. How do you do that? So I'm obsessed with healthy ageing, it's true. And also, my father died quite young. My father died at 70, and he'd been ill for a long time with all sorts of different things. So I never really saw him age. I just saw him being ill. But my mother died a couple of years ago, nearly 90. And her last decade was was rubbish. You know, it was awful. Yeah. It, was, it was how not to age. And I think that really clarified a lot of things for me. And so, and she was in a nursing home at the end. It was very, very like, you know, Teddy's days in the nursing home, very similar nursing home. And I think...
0: So your mother's nursing home really informed the way you wrote about Teddy's?
1: I would say that the nursing home in this book is exactly the same as my mother's nursing home. Horrifying. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. Awful, yes. Awful. And that was a good one.
0: And Teddy seems... Your sympathy seems so skewed towards male vulnerability in old age compared to women. Do you? I
1: find that interesting. I used to work with old people a long time ago, and they were all women. I mean, they were... To a single woman, they us. were women.
0: You outlive us. There was no old men at all.
1: I think women age better than men. I do. And I think men, old men to me, always seem so much more vulnerable and, and so much more sad. I feel much more affected by the poignancy of seeing an old man. In a...
0: Why is that? Because I, I absolutely agree with you, but I, I, I want I you to know. articulate it. I,
1: I don't know. I think it's... <sighs> I think much more. When I see an old woman, I don't think, oh, she was once a little girl, she was once someone's baby. But when I see an old man, I always think, he was once a little boy, he Mm -hmm. was once someone's baby. Much more so than I do with women, and I don't really know where that is. But there's something about, you know, when they unveiled the Bomber Memorial, you saw some of those old RAF guys who'd been invited to attend, and they could barely stand, but they were determined to. There was that kind of grit about them. And I know that younger generations... I mean, it's probably always been the same since time began, but younger generations have no time for older generations. No. But, you know, you they're not going to look at those old men and think, wow, I wonder what he did. I wonder what his story was. Was he a hero? You know, that full life that they've got behind them is just written off, I think.
0: Well, that is all in your writing yeah. and enormously powerfully evoked. So speaking of the elderly, your third object is the Queen. But in <laughs> fact, it's a picture of you at the age of two standing next to a television on which the Queen is appearing at her coronation.
1: Yes, because we bought the television for the coronation, being a very patriotic family, obviously. <laughs> and so I feel, like Viola does in the book, yes. that the Queen is bookending my life because I don't remember a time before the Queen. And, of course, all the generations that have succeeded me, my daughters have no idea there was a time before the Queen. No, yes. She has been there.
0: She'll always be All
1: here. the way through. And hopefully she'll, hopefully she'll be there through the end. So there's something about that strange continuity because if you think about how Britain has changed in that time, beyond any kind of recognition, I mean, just beyond even imagining.
0: Is this, yet, is this part of why you've been inspired to write the book? to reclaim something that is so irrevocably gone.
1: Well, yes, I suppose so. I mean, I think that's, in a way, that's what you do whenever you write a book, is you're reclaiming something, you're reclaiming some kind of lost memory, not necessarily your own, but some maybe even some kind of national memory. Because I, I mean, I am fascinated by the time period of my own life. I mean, and I find it extraordinary now that you can go and look at any exhibition, say, of the 50s. And that's, absolutely history Completely. and yet it's your life yeah. you know and I think that the older you get the more strange that disjunction must become but the queen to me is that continuity you always refer to that somehow so you know? what's
0: your earliest memory of her I mean, there's a picture of you at the age of two standing next to the television so I must have
1: watched the coronation, you but I have, have no memory it, no. of it. So no, I don't know. I don't know what my earliest memory of the Queen would be. I have a photograph of her walking past my father's shop in Stonegate just after she was, was crowned. So I was probably there as well. So my memories of the Queen sadly are lost.
0: So do you think that as a nation, our affection for the Queen or respect for her is diminishing generation by generation? Or do you think her role is as important now as it ever was?
1: I don't think it has diminished. We've seen in the Jubilee celebrations how powerful people's feelings are about the Queen. I don't think it translates into necessarily the rest of the monarchy. I think the Queen, because she has been there for so long, has become a very iconic figure for us. I think the nation is going to be astonished at how much it mourns her when she dies, which hopefully isn't for a long time. But I think that there will be a sense of collective grief because we suddenly realise again that history has gone, that we've lost Uh, so much.
0: You clearly have an enormous affection for England and particularly the countryside.
1: Mm, I think because I I live in the suburbs and I I lead an incredibly urban, suburban life and I miss... I used to live... For a while I lived in the countryside and I just feel that there's something that you... Well, I think most people, maybe not without recognising it, but I certainly just yearn for... Green for the countryside. I almost feel well, like I'd
0: out beyond.
1: Well, just you know, we're meant to live in in the countryside. We're not meant to live in towns. That's not how we are. We, you know, the way that we've evolved, we're still really stone age people, and we should still be out there, you know, in the, in the woods uh, on the hills. I think we, without knowing it, I think we miss landscape. We're meant to look at landscape. We're not meant to look at. All these straight lines in towns. And
0: here we are in a basement studio with no windows And many straight lines. In the middle of Soho. <laughs> no. but, So Fox Corner is the childhood home in the book. Is this the kind of place that you grew up in?
1: Not at all. I grew up... Um, I started off at the back of the shop in, in the centre of York and then we moved out to, I suppose, the suburbs of York. And... My parents, my father was a shopkeeper. My parents both came from very poor working class backgrounds, particularly my father. So they were very aspirational. I was sent to a private primary school because this is, you know, my father knew that education was the way upwards and onwards.
0: And did that create a divide between the life that you had started to experience and the people you mixed with and what you were born into?
1: Well, not particularly what I was born into, but my parents both came from large families uh, so I had lots of cousins and I was constantly being told that Catherine's spoilt. Spoilt. <laughs> because I got more stuff, basically, because I was an only child. There was more money. Uh, and my, my father particularly, but my mother too, they were spenders. They would, you know, they'd spend what they got. I quite admired them for that. So, you know, they didn't have much money, but they got that television set. And that's how they went through life. They My father liked nice things, so he didn't really ever... You know, stint himself that much. He wasn't extravagant, but there was a sense that, you know, if you wanted something, then you should try and get it.
0: So the Queen was your third object. Let's hear another clip now, and this is from 2012. Love, mercy, pity and
2: peace. The Queen sailed on heroically through wind and rain. Her diamond jubilee, Viola said to Teddy. She's been on the throne for 60 years. That's a long time. Can you remember her coronation? Bala was barely a year old when the Queen was crowned, and had never known another monarch. She would see Charles ascend to the throne, she supposed, possibly William, if she lived long enough, but she wouldn't see that fat baby become George Seventh. Life was finite. Civilizations rose and fell, and in the end everything was dust and sand, even that fat royal baby. Nothing beside remained. Hotels, maybe. So let's segue
0: from your third object, the Queen, to the German King. In other words, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Let's have a listen. piece of music is indelibly linked to that bonkers character Alex in A Clockwork Orange because it was used mm. in the Kubrick film version mm. Mm. of that. But this Beethoven appears in both your books. Why this particular piece of music?
1: I think because it brings with it, for us now, a lot of connotations. Um, you know, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and mm-hmm. it's the it's European anthem and it has a sense of, you know, those the, the very lyrics all men Will be brothers. It's it's very powerful. Part of it is just that I think it is the. I don't associate it with Kubrick because I've never actually seen A Clockwork Orange. I have to say, um, I just think it's probably one of the best pieces of music you've ever written, and it has a very emotive pull for me. When was I the first time it? that you heard it? Oh, Lord. Um, probably my father liked classical music. He had a lot of records, probably it would be him playing it, I think.
0: So he introduced you to this piece of music? He
1: introduced me to classical music, So it must be yes. an
0: enormously emotional, powerful thing for you.
1: I don't, not particularly with this piece of music. I just find this piece of music in itself enormously emotional, and I don't know why some music produces these feelings in us because I it's something to do simply with that arrangement of notes, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. that's, we respond more to some than to others. But I find this a very powerful piece of music, as, as so many people do. But I'd always wanted to put it in because I felt it was... There's always a heart to every book. There's always a, a kind of emotional goal in a novel when you're writing. Well, me, obviously, as I said, I don't know and how any other And you set out with write. that
0: goal in mind right from the I beginning. I knew
1: that that was going to be for me, the emotional centre of the book, and I knew it wouldn't necessarily be that for any reader, but it's a point I was trying to get to, and I knew it would be Ursula, who was with Teddy in the Albert Hall, and I knew that she would be, I think in the book, she's quivering with with emotion and feeling, and I think it happens just after he's been on the raid to Hamburg, and I think he's He's in in great denial about many things at that point, and he's also a shattered person by the war at that point, I think. For him, too, the music manages to seep through to him, for him to actually feel a normal reaction to it, I think, but also being with his sister. So it's a very powerful moment for both of them, but it's not a powerful moment that can necessarily be articulated or, or dissected. It's just a moment, and I was always moving towards them being in the Albert Hall listening to the Ninth in the middle of the war. And music has the power to heal, and will will music still have the power to heal at the end of the war? And how do we feel about the fact that these are German composers and we're exactly. fighting tooth and nail? The, the, these are the enemy, yes. And I thought that needed to be carried over into the second book because it was still true, I think. And I think it needed... It's Ursula's moment for me in this book, but she doesn't appear very often in A God in Ruins, but this is her somehow making her mark on the book. I think. So the
0: fact that it is so played and is so well known, that, that reinforced your desire to have it in the book rather than... I, Put a don't, break on you I don't listen
1: it. to it and hear something that's overplayed or cliched in the way that sometimes you listen to the opening bars of the Fifth and you, oh, everyone's ringtone. Uh, but, but that which is a shame because the Fifth is the, the, the most magnificent piece of music just written in the world. Uh, no, because I think I have a much more personal relationship with it. I don't understand music. I've never played an instrument. I never learned an instrument. So music to me is something very mysterious. This is The Penguin Podcast.
0: Now, your final object is The Adventures of Augustus book. Kate, could you please explain, just very briefly, how that fits into the book within the book?
1: Uh, The Adventures of Augustus is a book written by Teddy's Aunt Izzy, and, and she... Interview I well, interviews, she interrogates Teddy to get details of what a boy's life is and then she puts a lot of those details into the adventures of Augustus. and Teddy particularly dislikes it because he feels that she's that she's used him, but also he can't stand the boy in the books. he can't stand Augustus and and, and we see Augustus remaining an 11 year old boy and Teddy growing older and still disliking Augustus, but he also imagines what Augustus would be like if he'd been allowed to grow up. There's a Peter Pan element here
2: it began innocently enough in augustus's opinion anyway it always begins innocently mr swift sighed although he doubted that augustus's definition of innocence was the same as that of other people but it wasn't my fault augustus protested furiously that will be written on your headstone dear mrs swift said looking up from the sock she was darning one of augustus's needless to say what does he do to them, she frequently puzzled. And anyway, how could I have known what would happen? Augustus said. There is no action that doesn't bring with it a consequence, Augustus's father said. Only the short-sighted don't consider the consequences. Your publishers have very,
0: very kindly made you The Adventures of Augustus book, of the book within your book, as an object to have which I now have in my hands. and it even comes replete with those period illustrations. So, you've said that Augustus owes a debt to William Brown from the Just William stories, who you think is the greatest fictional character ever created. Now, what makes him (laughs) so great? Kate Atkinson, (laughs) this is your life.
1: I, I started reading William when I was very young, because I think the books were my were my uncles that were in my grandmother's house so n- nobody bought them for me I just discovered them and I from an early stage I thought he was he was funny but Richmond Compton's writing is so funny so it's not particularly William it's her creation of this I mean he would be a nightmare wouldn't he as a brother or as a son but <laughs> he there's something about this the naughtiness, which is just so inventive all the time, and she is an incredibly inventive uh, writer. She can create a farce every time she writes a chapter. It's a new farce, and I think being able to write farce well is oh such a trick. I, I would love to be able to write really complete farce the way that she does. It's just so wonderful. It's so so past now, so gone.
0: So, Kate, you've said *A God in Ruins* is about fiction and how we must imagine what we cannot know. Can you explain exactly what you mean by this?
1: Not exactly. (laughs) Um, Precisely that. I think... um, Come on, Kate. I think to get into the heart of something, maybe particularly with historical fiction, this is true, but I think it's true of all fiction, that you are trying to create something that people can tap into the emotion of it a lot of the time. Not that books are continually emotional all the way through, but you're trying to create something that, can be conveyed in the same form to someone else. So that I write something in a book that's that's very um, very dark and you read it and you get that same feeling of darkness from what you read. And that's a very strange and curious exchange that art has with people because then I want everyone to experience that sense of darkness from that book.
0: And okay, Devil's Advocate, have you ever had an experience where a reader has come up to you and said, has given you a completely off-piste reading of something and it's made perfectly logical sense to them and you would think they're barking.
1: Occasionally, but not very often. That's more likely to happen with critics, as we (laughs) said, than readers, (laughs) I think.
0: Okay, I'm very intrigued that you said, um, I saw an interview uh, on the BBC where you talked about the fact that if you could be put into a five-star hotel room for a month with room service, you could write a book in a month. Yes. But do you not think that real life coming in between your plans and the dreaming, wasting, boredom time that you might experience sometime, that all feeds into how no, you write? I no, think,
1: I think in between novels it feeds into how you write, living your normal life. Uh-huh. But then I think once you lock into writing a novel, you really don't want the distraction of, you know, is there any milk in the fridge or, you know, it's it's not. You become... Does your I family become...
0: go into a state of suppressed terror No, her mum's on the c-
1: they are extraordinarily unhelpful can i just say that oh, <laughs> um no no i think they they do they recognize i think that i go into a certain state where really into the I'm zone. being i'm being incredibly polite but really i would rather just be here doing this
0: do they have a word for it or oh, an i don't expression? know
1: you'd have to ask oh, okay <laughs> i don't think so but you know it is that that thing where you need to come to grips with something and if you need to get to grips with something unfortunately a book is quite a big thing to come to grips with it's not just a single small event and i think that's that's hard
0: and you go. always know what the beginning is going to be and what the end is going to be yes. right from the start if the
1: middle that's tricky yes yeah. i always know where i'm going at the end if i don't have a title and i don't know where i'm going then i can't start i can't write without a title that's impossible
0: gosh because there are other writers, as you know, who start writing and said that, that is the last thing they want is to know how it's going to end because then it prescribes everything that has to come in between.
1: No, it doesn't. Not at all. That's quite the opposite, I think. The trick is 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 working out how you get to that point because yeah. it's usually so hard to I
0: actually agree with get you. there. <laughs> I have to thank you so much, Kate, for sharing your five objects with us today. And Now, they say two is company and three is a crowd, but... Will there ever be a third companion to Life After Life and A God in Ruins?
1: Oh, that's a, a good question. I am The next novel I write, I think, is also set during the war, but it's very different.
0: This is not the Agatha Christie-style one?
1: No, not that one. I, I've got many novels I I keep saying I'm writing,
0: though I don't write. But are you no. not going to write the Agatha Christie one? Because I, I want a part in that. Please. No, I
1: am. I am going to write that one, and, and you may have a part. I've said it here. No, I think it's going to be about a branch of MI5 during the war, not the glamorous branch that you know the double cross and all of that but a much more um low-key branch
0: well there we have it thank you very much kate it's been an enormous privilege for me follow us on twitter at penguin uk books and join us on facebook to see pictures of all the objects we've chatted about today and to find out which other authors will be joining me in the penguin studio soon thank you very much for your company i've enjoyed it enormously